Welcome to Living Western, a show dedicated to telling the real story of the rural American West through individual stories of the amazing people who call this part of the world home. The guest on today's episode is somebody very special to me. You might say he's a personal hero. So I figured what better way to start off the interviews of the Living Western podcast than to have him be my first guest. This man once managed one of the largest ranches in the country for many years, and he did so being profitable every year, which is kind of unheard of in the ranching world. But not only did he manage the ranch in a profitable fashion, but over the years of his management, the ranch won many state, regional, and national level environmental stewardship awards, proving that ranching and conservation go hand in hand. This man is a dedicated father, husband, Christian, and he's the author of a book, Cowboy in a Corporate World. The interview you're going to see today will be a highlight of why this book is so important and why you should get it. This man is a wonderful person, an amazing human, and he's my father, Mr. Ray Markser. This is episode number two, part two. We did have some technical difficulties within this podcast episode. You're going to hear a weird little knocking sound every now and then, and we narrowed that down to a bouncy old second floor and a podcast mic stand that didn't work right. So uh, I will rectify that in future episodes, but I want you to enjoy this episode because despite the little bit of technical difficulty we had, this was a very, very good episode and very special to me. Enjoy. We were there to do a cowboy job, you know, and and be profitable. But but uh, it that that tickles me to see people go on beyond and and uh, experienced uh, life and work with us, and yet they've gone on to way bigger things, and and they're sharing it with others. That's that's inspiring. So, I mean, we could talk about the technology for a long time. Suffice it to say. Huh. You and you slept in a sheep wagon. Oh yeah. If I remember right, you got carbon monoxide poisoning in yeah. a sheep wagon. <laughs> yeah. Nineteen seventy five. This first I guess it was seventy six. Yeah. Yeah. The first spring up at Sage Creek that we got to use we converted the old lamb and sheds into a cabin shed for first calf heifers and it was makeshift, you know. We didn't want to spend any money and I had to talk them into letting me do it and it was the first year after they'd gotten rid of the sheep, and so they were, you know, probably a little reluctant to say they were never going to have sheep again. But, I mean, we needed to do something. Anyway, I, I cobbled up, I know guys, we cobbled up a deal in the sheep sheds to work, and, but there was no heat, and I had it to where I could night calve some heifers, so had a old sheep herder wagon that we pulled up there it was a really good one i mean they had good ones from 
It had, you know, it was airtight and louver windows on the sides and everything. It was it was a really nice sheep wagon. But I had it rigged up with a to the power there and a little electric milk barn heater in there for heat. And, and I'd get up every hour, at least every hour, to check the heifers anyway, whether there was something going on or not. But this one night, the breaker kept blowing. It was snowing and blowing, and breaker kept blowing from that heater, so I... And I was getting cold, so I cranked on the little Coleman stove, little Coleman stove and two-burner stove just to take the chill off. And I opened the louver windows, but apparently the wind wasn't blowing right. And anyway, the next day I was pretty sick to my stomach, couldn't eat, and felt like crap. I thought maybe I had mono. That's how I felt. And uh, went to the doctor a day or so later and and I still remember. It's kind of funny because it's a big circle. Uh, we doctor now. Uh, we live within five miles of the doctor's office where we doctored then. But at any rate, uh, they came in and the nurse drew the blood, drew blood, and I, of course, wasn't bothered by that. And I watched her draw the blood, and I noticed, man, BBS is. I've never seen blood that orange. Have you? And she didn't say anything, but she immediately left the room. And 10 seconds later, her and the doctor were back in there. And he looked and he says, Ray, he says, you've been mechanicking inside a garage or something? Because he says, you got carbon monoxide poison bad. And then I, I knew. I said, now here's what happened. And and so he told me, he says, good thing you were getting up every hour because he says you probably wouldn't have woke up if you wouldn't have been. But even to this day, now that was in 1976, if I get behind, well, they've changed the emissions some on diesels, yeah. But it used to be if I got behind a, a Greyhound bus or a diesel truck that smoked, and even getting diesel to this day, even if I get spilled diesel on my hand, I'll have a headache within 30 seconds. Uh, it left a lasting deal on me. Wow. Huh. Well, now you've talked about the technology that was there when you got there. What kind of technology were you dealing with when you left the ranch 37 years later? Okay, so so the big one, of course, you know, uh, the camps didn't have electricity. Uh, when you started? When I started. And... and when we lived in Can in Summer County, it didn't have electricity either. We used propane and propane lights, and we had a, a pump that we could pump water up into a cistern, and we had gravity flow water, and we had propane water heaters and propane stoves. So, you know, that was more of a modern community. Yeah, it was fine. But, but uh, you know, you didn't have a good way of refrigeration. You know, propane refrigerators are not real good uh, or effective. But so, um, like in 1986, we bought, we bought uh, the Jones place from Bill and Eileen Jones over on the south side of the Centennial, and that was 12 miles away from the Stoddier camp. That was the closest phone. But they had power. So we in a cabin that's right there, we... Uh, they had a little log cabin alongside, and so we put a couple chest freezers or upright freezers over there so we'd have a way to store more frozen food over there for the camp. 
and for everybody in camp over there instead of having to go 35 or 40 miles back to headquarters. And I remember all of that. And yeah. Like you had cookhouses at the time. Still, yeah, we still so, had cookhouses. So yeah. to kind of when Dad keeps talking about camps, in the ranching world, when, when you talk about camps, there are places that are really remote. You're a long ways from any town. It's usually a couple houses or trailer houses, a barn, what you need to get your job done. But prior to, well, and some ranches still run with the cookhouses and stuff. But for the most part, you know, that's a change that has happened where they don't do that anymore. But back then, I can remember a lot of cook stories. I remember a lot of challenges with um, you having to find cooks, keep cooks, and keep them sober, um, and find cooks that would cook food that the hired hands wouldn't want to well, avoid. And that, and that that's one of the changes, I guess, Clayton. I don't know as I'd call it technology, but one of the major changes was back in those days, early days, most of the crews were made up of single men. Uh, you know, there was there there the primarily it was mostly single men, um, and so we had big bunkhouses and cookhouses, and in in our case there, we had a cookhouse at headquarters, which you know provided the food for for a farm crew and the single guys on the farm crew on the sheep crew and on the cowboy crew when they were down there at headquarters. But then in the spring of the year, we'd have the, the cowboy crew, a lot of them would be at the Jake, 10 miles up the road in the Blacktail. There's no power, no nothing, just a little old cabin, two-room cabin. I mean, that's primitive. We well, did... bunkhouse was a one-room cabin. Yeah, and we had, we had uh, the, the most modern thing in there was a, a propane stove. And we had one propane light that hung over the over the table, uh, but there was a hand pump outside for water, uh, you know. And uh, you go try and find even back then. I mean, you go try and find somebody that's willing to cook in those situations. It's next to impossible. And anyway, then. Uh, and then we had a cookhouse in the Centennial at the cow camp there, and then they, they had ran a smaller crew at Sage Creek, and and the foreman there usually their his wife cooked for that crew there. So, so literally there was four cookhouses, and uh, we ran a commissary to you know to provide the food and and staples for all those. So there there was a lot to that, but but then you know we we saw a shift. In going from mostly a primarily a, a single man crew, where things started changing to where we were using more married men, uh, longer term, let, hoping to get less turnover. But there was still the way that things were situated. There was still a lot of turnover uh, until we really changed the way we managed the people and, and made a big change. And and then. Uh, we, we got away from the big crews, but in order to do that, it took some change in not so much technology as it did in the way we wanted to manage people, but the way we ran the ranch. And so uh, it took more pickups, so everybody would have 
more transportation, more ind- individual transportation and opportunities, and more more horse trailers or stock trailers to where they could go to different places and scatter the people out more instead of doing everything in, in one big crew. And and later on, after I was manager, we recognized, you know, we, we really changed things that way in that we, we went from a, basically a command-based system that most operations still, a lot of them still have today, to to one where it's, we called it market-based management, where we spread those responsibilities out over more people. And uh, and so they had more responsibility, they had more authority, and, and but they had more opportunity too. And so by doing that, we really changed our uh, crew. Your in, culture. The culture, in, in the makeup of it and the longevity of it. And and I can tell you, we, you know, we talked earlier about the safety, the safety deal that we did. I can tell you right now that in that old culture that we had, where it was command based, you know, big crews and, and the way it was when I went there, there's no way we could have achieved that kind of a safety record there because we just we didn't have enough continuity and enough consistency in the crew to where nobody stayed long enough to where you could really build that culture. Right. And uh, yeah. Well, that's universal. Uh, you know, it's not just in the ranching world that that's important, and when where that aspect of human resources has really uh, evolved, because you kind of had to figure out how to do more with less to be more efficient. You had because in management, part of being profitable is managing your costs, and your human costs are really high. The more bodies you have, the more risk you have. And also the more people that you're paying. So it's better to find somebody that is highly skilled that will stick around a long time because turnover is extremely expensive. And that that it's not just in the ranching culture. I mean, even I, I work for the government and we see that. Um, so it was interesting as a kid to watch that change because, you know, if folks are watching like old Westerns and old TV shows, all you see is guys, single guys all grouped together, bunkhouses, camps, whatever. And that was the reality of ranching, when, even when I was a kid. So it was interesting to watch that transition as a young person, um, watching you figure out, well, how do I minimize this? I don't want to say minimize, but kind of. Like you had to figure out how to do the most, even more work than ever before but figure out how to do it with fewer, higher quality people. Yeah, but the the, the one key thing there that that and, and the Coke folks helped us understand, and it it took a while for it to to really come to fruition. But we learned selection and development is probably the most important things that we can do on these ranches and it's still that way today you can't do everything yourself you just can't do it all yourself and you get on a big place like that you you realize that pretty quick there i'm limited as to how much i can get i mean we did a lot we could accomplish a lot as individuals but and did but you're limited and and so you recognize that you've got to have others help you to, to, to accomplish a task and to be successful. 
So the, the two most important things that that were were not considered enough for many many years, and some still don't enough. And, and and it's a it's at a crisis still I think in our in our industry is the selection selection and development of our next generation of producers people that are on the land that are that are doing that work and and the primary thing the the most important things in that selection and development you know uh, maybe you do a pretty good job of selecting. You know, or or maybe some instances, it's it's family member that's going into the workforce there and maybe taking over, but you haven't done much of a job of developing them, and that's that's where most of us uh, fall down. And, and I I still believe it's kind of in crisis for our industry to to be sustainable and continue is the development of we don't have any plan. And and it, I liken it throughout my career. I, I watched, and I liken horses and people are much the same. A, a ranch horse and a ranch employee are much the same. It's very important that you select that right individual for the task that you know for for what you want them for. But you like a horse, you know they got to be sound and all. But but they got to have the right kind of mind and attitude to be long-term horse there or they're going to roll over you know they're not going to be there long you're going to be replacing a, a person is the same way that that person it's much more important to select both a horse or a person especially for the values and beliefs that they have that innate thing and beliefs and and how they really are what drives them than the skills Skills can be taught. Skills you can teach anybody. I, I I found that so so true. I took kids, and I used to take young kids. Uh, I I hired a lot when I was at Sage Creek. I hired a number of young kids. When you're talking kids, <clears throat> let's talk about like what what is the age group you're talking about there? Eighteen. I had a couple that were younger, but eighteen, nineteen years old. Uh, but they they had no exposure to ranch life at all. These kids were grew up in a kind of an urban environment or But they had the want to But they had the desire be a cowboy. They had the desire. But I could take one of them that didn't hadn't grown up with any of those habits that you form and I could teach I, I taught a couple of them kids. I can remember a kid from from up by opportunity, this little kid he he had no background like that. Had hardly ever ridden. And I needed somebody to help me feed and stuff. And, and I like doing that, helping kids learn. And I'm telling you, within a month, that kid could heal team rope. I mean, rope heels as good as anybody. Uh, but he didn't have any bad habits to, to break. He was like a fresh canvas. And and that was one of the things I really enjoyed in throughout my career. Some of those opportunities that I had to uh, influence the picture that was painted in somebody's life on that canvas. But selection and development are are two of the key things that I think are so much important. And I would have to say that 
the development deal is still one of the most important things in our in our industry in agriculture that is in a crisis mode. Well, I think we when I I used to have a for those of you who don't know, I used to have a headhunting business. I called it a farm and ranch personnel. I would headhunt and find employees for farms and ranches. And um, I ended up walking away from that business for a couple of reasons. One, I was going through a divorce and I, you know, I had to put that on the back burner. But the other thing was really discouraging is I found over time running that business that I was having a harder time finding quality employers than I was finding people that would go work. And it goes back to what you're talking about development. Anybody can hire somebody to just go do a job, go feed. But that's not leadership. That's just hiring somebody to do manual labor. And in a lot of cases, those people that, you know, they'd come to me, hey, we have a hard time keeping help around here. I got to know real quick. If that was the first word out of their mouth, I wouldn't do business with them because they had a hard time keeping help because they were a poor employer. Um, and so development is leadership. And traditionally, a lot of ranches don't have a lot of that. They have the what you've referenced earlier about they go get a job done. And the, the boss, the owner, will go get the job done and do the same jobs that the guy he's hiring. But he's not training that guy that he's hiring to do a higher level job. He just wants him to go feed the cows or calve the heifers. Yeah. And really, our, if you look at the big picture and long term, uh, each one of us as managers or as parents, uh, our job here on earth should be to train the next generation to take our place. So when we step off the landscape, uh, things will, won't skip a beat and they'll even get better. Right, but that's a mindset shift because there's a lot of old traditional cowboys, ranchers that don't want anybody to take their place. No, and and that's that's not that's that's a human. I think that's just a human nature deal where where a person spends you know a good portion of their life getting to a point where they have a certain amount of authority and and responsibility and authority, and it they like that, and yet they're. In just a human condition, you you don't want to turn that loose. I I see, you know, I've witnessed and I've been I've been there, you know, and on both sides of it, and and been that person that wasn't a good employer. Uh, but uh, you, you see people who, and, I, and I've seen it all throughout different places where I've I've witnessed where there's and it doesn't matter if it's it wasn't always in agriculture that I witnessed it but like if it was a a family or a generational deal where they were trying to pass on to the next generation that that person that was in charge at the time uh they kind of went out of their way to make it difficult for the next generation because they didn't want them to feel like they were entitled you know like I had to go through this crap, so you should too, you know. And and we need, as humans, we need to be beyond that. We need to get past that. We need to learn from those experiences in the past and share them. That, to go back to one of your first questions about writing the book, 
one of the, the you know, uh, quotes that I've come had that kind of defines that is uh, what I come up with some time ago. Is knowledge without application is worthless, and so is experience not shared. Uh, it's really true. Yeah. Well, just in my professional career uh, in conservation and in working for different agencies, we help lots of different uh, operations, farms, ranches, whatever. And if I combine, you know, what I watched growing up, I combine my experience owning that personnel company and then everything that I've watched in my professional career as a conservationist, uh, I'm really worried about the state of our industry, um, which makes me also worried about our future as a country and a society because there's a generational transition in, that's happening right now that needs to happen <laughs> or is in the process of it, and it's they're really struggling. The older generation, understandable, they've been doing things a, a certain way for a long time, and that's the way they're going to do it. The younger generation, as they take over these operations, they can't continue to operate that way financially. It's not efficient. Um, and there's not a lot of encouragement from the older generation really growing, developing, as you were talking about earlier, this next generation. And what we've seen in a few cases, the older generation gets to a point where physically or mentally they can't do it anymore. The next generation comes in and, and they've been the labor, they've been the grunt, and then all of a sudden all this responsibility and um, decision making decision making just gets dumped on them. And it's hard for them to move forward. It's hard for them to figure out how, how am I going to make this a sustainable, profitable business? Um, and it, it's a sad thing to see. But I, there are people out there that are really working on it. Absolutely. There's organizations out there that are really trying to help agriculture. Uh, Ranching for Profit School, you know, that's something that we've talked about a lot. And, and King Ranch Institute. King Ranch Institute. They are actively working at trying to help that situation. Okay, so I had an outline for this conversation a little bit, and as <laughs> most of our conversations go, it kind of meanders, and that's all right. That, I mean, that's the wonderful thing about this podcasting platform that I really wasn't familiar with a couple of years ago, but as I've learned more about it, I really kind of appreciate that. It's, it's not you know, talking to a camera, telling a scripted story. It's literally recording conversations that you could have any day. Um, but they're important conversations. And that's, that's my forte, Clayton, as you know. Uh, I've given lots of presentations and speeches throughout my life. Uh, very few have I ever written much down. I've had a few notes. The only one that I really wrote out was my dad's eulogy. Uh, and then some speeches in high school and FFA. But other than that, I, uh, I can, uh, I enjoy it, this kind of, where it leads us. The conversation, where it leads you, uh, sometimes it might not be to the, in the right direction, but <laughs> that's the way no, it is. There's no wrong direction. No. no. So we could talk for hours. And... I'm going to try to move this along a little bit, though, because we'll be here all night if we 
don't. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about your mountaintop moments in your life, but also in your career, then they can be the same moment, but like the high points of your life. Just a couple. Oh boy. The high point of my life followed one of the lowest points in my life. And uh, I, I was married before and, and went through a divorce and that was in 1980 and uh, I'd never been lower and uh, but God got me to a point he, he knew that's what it was going to take uh, you know I hadn't been what I'd call a wild kid or anything like that I was always kind of acted older than you know, like a mature person most all my life. I was kind of a leader and that. But but I, uh, he had to get my attention somehow. And uh, he did that through that divorce. I was at Sage Creek by myself. I mean, I'd turn the TV on and, and I'd leave it. It would be fuzz. We only got one station out of Idaho Falls. It'd be fuzz. But I wanted the noise. And uh, that was a habit I hardly ever broke, you know, and still like to have that background noise at night even. But but I got to where he got my attention, and I was at a low point, just, and I found God the 18th of August, 1980. I asked the Lord to save me and take over and run my life because I wasn't doing a very good job. And and it wasn't a bad life, but I, I mean, I wasn't happy and, and it just wasn't really accomplishing much, even though it was, I was enjoying it. But And two months later, into my life walked your mom. And it's a... We talked about it last night. I mean, that, that's been 44 years ago. And uh, she walked in the room last night. I said, yeah, it's just like the first night we met. You were looking back to see if I was looking back to see if you were looking back at me. <laughs> and uh, But that meeting her and God had put us together, we, we, we recognized, both of us recognized it right from the start. The first time we went out to dinner, we closed the place down. They finally run us off at the end of the bar time, but we were in there for dinner. In conversation. In conversation. And it was like two old friends that had, hadn't seen each other for 10 years but it was like we knew each other and uh, we fell in love and I asked her to marry me two two weeks after we met and she said yes and we waited a while we waited till that was in October I guess end of October and we got married the 21st of February 1981 and uh, that would have to be getting to share my life and and raise you kids 
and do it in the environment that we did working on that ranch and raising you kids in that environment around all those different people, but amongst God's creation. That's the high point by far. Awesome. Well, I would say that all of those people were also part of God's creation that we, the human experience that we got to witness, all those people, you know, because until the late 90s, mid, mid 90s, it was still very much seasonal cowboys coming through. So we got to watch hundreds of people come in and out of our lives and in and out of the ranch. And we got to see all these different skill sets. And, you know, if those of you who are outside of the Western culture, there are so many subcultures of cowboys out there that it would blow your mind. And there's a lot of nuances and idiosyncrasies to each of them. But being able to see all of that and experience all of that. And, not, really... and not judge them. They're right. different. You recognize well, they're different. They have their reason for being different, but hundred percent. That's okay. You understand where somebody comes from. It's a lot easier to appreciate their perspective, and uh, I, I have the same appreciation, same highlights, but from a kid's standpoint, um, very much appreciate the opportunities that God gave us to grow up that way. It was a very unique life that, you know, I. I didn't appreciate till after I left home. It didn't take me long after I left home to appreciate it. But, um, you know, I can remember as a teenager looking forward to leaving Dillon, Montana and the ranch because that's all I'd ever known, you know, and I'd, I'd see other people from different walks of life and town kids and I'd get jealous of what they had. And I didn't, I don't know why now, but, but it, I didn't know anything else. And I had that desire to figure out life for myself and sure. see, see the world. But it didn't take long after moving away to college for me to see the world a little bit more for what it was and recognize that I had had a very unique oh. upbringing that very few people in the world have. Very and, few, Clayton. And I very much appreciate that. And, you know, I've actually I've made a post before on Facebook that kind of upset a few local people that I grew up with, but... I feel very strongly that one of the best things that I ever did was leave home. Move away from home, move to, uh, not with friends, move to a completely different environment to where I could figure out who I was and figure out what I didn't like about where I came from and also what I treasured. Um, it was very important to leave to get that perspective. And that's something, Clayton, that I I advise. You know, this having this book out here, we've we've reached so many thousands of people and, and reacquainted with lots of, of folks. But I I get I get con in conversation with people who whose children are. Uh, I I was in conversation with a, a family from Nebraska just recently. And they called me, and and because I'm available, you know, on the website and everything, I put my phone number. I I love hearing from people, but they had a 16 year old girl and a 19 year old son, and wanting advice. They want to come back to the ranch. What what would you advise them? Should they go to college? Because they'd gone to college and they were wondering if. At any rate, uh, I I. Uh, Told him, I said, well, 
I, I didn't finish college, but I said, I'm glad I went when I did. But I said, no, I don't, I don't think that's real beneficial right now. But the one thing that I, I uh, mentioned to her is I said, you know, from, from us, if they want to come back to the ranch, if they're serious about coming back to the ranch, I recommend from an educational standpoint, Ranching for Profit School is one of the most effective schools I ever went to in my entire life. And, uh, but I said, the other thing I would advise your kids, though it'd be hard, I said, go work for somebody else for about two years before they come back to the ranch. I said, uh, they and you need that. And I hope, you know, for years I've, when I've, I've, uh, given advice, been asked for advice from young couples who are getting married my my advice has been to him. Uh, you get married, go live in a little old single wide trailer for about a year and a half or two years. Don't don't go into anything better. Live in some rat trap trailer and learn to grow together, and not start out, you know, in a brand new home. And you'll learn to grow together, and and so it it gives you a perspective, and. Uh, we all need to have something to 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 gauge something against, and so if if you don't ever leave out of that environment, you're not going to know what is out there. You're going to wonder always. Yep. yep. Okay, so we talked about your mountaintop moment, and that followed. You said that followed, you know, one of your low points. Give us a little bit of an example of the hardest things you've been through in your life or in your careers running a ranch. Like talk about the hard moments that you experienced um, and how you got through it. Um, the, the hardest came at the end, but, at the end of my career there at the ranch, that that was the hardest part. But uh, you know, I got through it with God's help. You know, but and recognizing I was not a victim, I was not going to be a victim. Uh, I had choices, and uh, but some things that stick out, uh, and and I, I don't know as I'd call this. It's maybe not the hard thing that you're talking about, but. One of the regrettable things I had in my career, you know, almost from the get-go, all but three months of 37 years, I was in charge of people. I went from the youngest Gunsel on the cowboy crew when I went there in October of 74 to three months later I was the foreman at Sage Creek and had to hire a couple people and, and managed 80, 90,000 acres and a couple thousand cows, you know, through the summer. So I was in a leadership position virtually all the time. Uh, that uh, builds some things in you that, that owners of operations uh, it's common with, and that is, y you don't ever put it to sleep. 
is there 24 hours a day, every day of the year. Uh, and and along with that comes some stresses, some of it self-invoked, but, uh, but it's things that uh, you deal with on a regular basis. And... Uh, you don't realize it. it can happen pretty subtly, but it becomes what now is known as stress. <laughs> and, and it's just part of life. And you, you deal with a high level of stress for, for a long time. And it's not unique to me. I mean, it, there's lots of people that do the same thing and have done that. But, but back to the, the one point of all the years that I worked there as a people manager I have one regret and there's there's been plenty of times when I I've I've not done you know, the best I, I mean I failed it in, in some way in some extent at managing people didn't do probably as best as I could but there was there was one person in particular and his, his name was Dean Deedy and when I was the cow foreman there he came from the old crew and Dean was my right-hand man, and he didn't have a lot of leadership qualities or anything like any experience, put it that way. But he was a he was a good hand, and he was a good guy. And I relied on him. He was my my go-to guy. He was my right hand. And you know, I I was so demanding of him that I didn't help him be successful. I was just demanding of him. And I didn't give him that help and leadership that he needed to be successful. And I lost him. And I don't blame him. But at that point, uh, and I look back at now, I was a boss, not a leader. And uh, somewhere along the line, I like to think that I, I made that switch. And... Uh, I'm sure the people can tell you that it was good that I made that switch because <laughs> I had I had a lot of energy. You know, I was young. I had a lot of energy and and ambition and desires to to do well and to do better and to accomplish a lot. And uh, and you know, if, if you just drive people to do that, you know, you, you, you'll get a certain amount of success, but not long term. And and you might accomplish stuff, but uh, they're going to be miserable. And uh, when we really turned things around and decided to operate differently, uh, it made a big difference in our people's lives and their families' lives. And gave other people opportunity to raise their kids just like you kids were raised, you know. Uh, one of the things that I noticed growing up, especially when I got older and I was working with the crew a lot, was there was a lot of battles that you fought on behalf of just keeping people employed and keeping the ranch um, in existence that a lot of people didn't have any clue of. I mean, I, I got, you know, I was in the truck for lots of yeah. complaining, you know, which it's human nature yeah. to complain about your job and yeah. um, people that maybe didn't like the way you did things. 
but they didn't they didn't know what was going on behind the scenes as us kids that you know we got to see it we got to see it wear on you um we got to hear a little bit of it when you would talk with mom but um we watched it wear on you because there was there was burdens that you never let any of them know about because they couldn't handle it and and you didn't you didn't want it was my burden. It was your burden. But um, there was a lot of, I think, misunderstandings or the, if, if they had only known, I guess that as I was a younger guy, I can remember, um, like, if you only knew what he was going through. But, but Clayton, that, that goes, that's typical in, in anybody's walk of life. It, and I, I liken it to the phrase, until you've walked a mile in their shoes, you don't know what they're going through. You know, you see people be like bullied and stuff like that, and and you you just don't know what they've got they're dealing with. But you should consider it. Yeah. You know, until you consider that you know, this is why they're that way. You know, but until you walked a mile in my shoes, don't be critical. But I can I can still remember the first fall I was there at the ranch on the cowboy crew, and there was a couple of the crews had been there for for a while. And I had I had to go with them some, and they got on a kick of complaining about the cowboys, and I liked where I was, and I put up with it about two days non-stop and finally I just I was sitting in the middle in the pickup and and they were ranting on both sides man I just flat told them I said guys I said I like where I'm working and I said you guys apparently don't but I said I don't want to hear any more complaining I said I want to have a good attitude if you can't say something good about our cow boss I said keep your mouth shut because if you say something I'm going to him with it that ended that conversation, and I was serious. I'd have gone to Tom. I there was stuff I never told him, you know, that was going on. But it didn't matter because they didn't stay long anyway. Right. But but I didn't put up with it. And in my whole, I, I was the last one in all the years I was there. If there was something going on in the ranch, I was the last one to know. Because I didn't want to listen to rumors or belly aching or because I know it was part of human nature and it was going to go on, and I had to do the best that I could, and and just go on and not let that stuff affect my my decisions. It can be hard to stay above it, but the, the consequences of not staying above it, um, well, they'll they'll destroy your career and they'll destroy your every career that you're in, if you can't get out of that, you know, I struggle with that in my own job with, you know, yeah. working for the government. I, I have my moments where I'm yeah. kind of bitter. Yeah. Um, but you just got to figure out how to make the best of yeah. whatever situation. That and you're like in. I said before, don't be a victim. And that's, you know, when you think about it, you know, that's, that's a simple statement, but it's very profound. I mean, you know, if you're complaining and bellyaching about where, what you're doing, regardless of whether you're a cowboy or a miner or, you know, a pencil pusher, uh, if you're miserable about it, that's your fault. 
do something else. Go do something else. Yeah. 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 Being stuck mentally, like feeling stuck yeah. is a trap. And it but it's a trap that we kind of put ourselves in. We do. We are not locked into it. We might have to accept the risks and accept the consequences of making a change, but not making the change it's could on be, us. could be and but the but can, to continue in what you know just because it feels secure can be far more damaging yeah. than making that change. Yeah. Um so much I want to talk about. But <laughs> what would you say, if you could just give us a couple, have been your most powerful lessons learned through your career? Just like a top couple. One. One top one. Regardless of whether it's career or just life. Balance. Seeking the right balance. And in that, the, the big top thing that I, I learned about balance is figuring out what things you want, you need to balance. And it's in my book, but, and you've, you've read it, but it's balancing the three most important things in your life, God, family, and work. And you put them in that order of balance and importance. And you do that and you'll have a pretty good life. What about best life advice that you've gotten from somebody that you respect? You already brought up one with Bill Caffey. That that was that was one of the most profound ones was from Bill, don't be a victim. Uh I've gotten, I've learned so much from so many people. I guess it's maybe not something that was told me, but that I, I learned that I value probably more now as I've gotten older and, and is be genuine. When I, I look back at my career and the people that I was around and, and that influenced me and that I wanted to emulate possibly or be as much like as I could you know I saw qualities in them that were unique uh, it's being genuine uh, don't try to be something you're not and and just be genuine and two of two of the most successful human beings that I've ever met were that they were the most genuine people I've ever met yeah well I can tell you one that you had in your office um, I can still see it, and I don't know who the author was, but there was a piece of paper on your office wall. I can't remember if it was on a frame or not, but as a kid, walked by it a lot of times, and one of them said, you are a product of the people you surround yourself with. And that was one of the most powerful quotes that stuck with me that you had in your office. I had a number of them. I had, I had one from Calvin Coolidge. Then I had a, a, a one that I kept on my wall in a, uh, that was credited to Abraham Lincoln. But uh, it had 10 points in it. It was, it was really good. And it basically got to, the, you know, one of the cruxes of the deal was, you, you know, like you, you can't, uh, 
you can't build a nation on borrowed money. You you can't build a business on borrowed. You know, you you can't uh, you can't make bigger men by making others smaller. You know those yeah, you can't, those kind that's of. That's another one I remember. You yeah. can't build yourself by tearing other people down. Yeah, yeah, those, those kind of things. Uh, they're 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 good profound deals. And then of course, there's so much, so much in the Bible and from Psalms and Proverbs uh, to to learn from. Uh, so much uh, Proverbs is is. Probably one of my favorite books of the Bible. It just gives so many directions and life lessons uh, to help you through life. Well, the last kind of more uh, conversational question I have revolves around your opinions on the state of things regarding Western, rural Western life. And maybe the viewpoints, maybe um, talk about what worries you. And, and specifically, I'm talking about things like urban sprawl, changing demographics, um, c community growth in these small communities or not growing, um, conflicting personal values. Thing, there's a lot of change happening in our part of the world right now. What, what are some of the things that you kind of wish that folks from outside of our culture knew as they're wanting to move to this part of the world? It's all cyclical. You know, as I see, when you talk about demographics and, and I see, you know, there's pretty major changes going on in agriculture right now as far as land ownership. But that's something that's occurred before. If you look at if you look at the landscape and the landscape, you know that we were familiar with for almost forty years was five hundred square miles of southwestern Montana. A hundred years ago, there was ten times more people on the land, and there maybe even more than that than there is now on that footprint. You mean on that footprint because of the Homestead Act. And people had people moved out here for the opportunity. They looked for the opportunity. They knew it was going to be hard, but they the human. It, it's neat that that that, and I still think that that's still there in our in humans. They seek an opportunity, and those people really. I mean, they they put it all on the line. Them homesteaders. You take. For example, in the Sage Creek deal up there, there's about 90,000 acres. Well, say in that whole drainage, there was about 150,000 acres, I suppose. It took in that much. So maybe maybe nearly 200 square miles, you know, or not that much, but, but quite a few square miles. I can think of 38 different homesteads that I, I knew of in that basin. Now there's three the ranch headquarters, uh, Jay Talents, and the Knox place. And not everybody, somebody doesn't live there year-round at those two. There's only one that has a year-round occupant now. But 100 years ago, there was families living in every one of them, 38 different deals. And, and so there's more people on the land. But they couldn't make a go of it. And they left and went 
to the more urban city or town for different different jobs but but you see that imprint that they had on the land and but that's one of the things that's kind of always been kind of neat to me from a from a high level like looking down like god might look at it uh from a, a commercial airplane you look down on that landscape that you know so well that you've been all over and you know where all the homesteads and that that human activity through the years had been and from an airplane you can't see there's any difference in the landscape from the ground there's a lot of places where it's hard to tell that somebody was even there yeah yeah so uh but but from the standpoint of land ownership you know a uh, hundred years ago there was a lot of big ranches the old original matador there in texas that was headquartered in texas I don't know how many million, and there was a million and some acres, I think, but they went clear up into Canada. They were in places all over uh, eastern Montana and the Dakotas and Saskatchewan and Alberta, uh, and then, of course, in Texas and, and that. But uh, they were all owned by a syndicate, you know, a European syndicate, and then and there was other places, big places like that, that period of time where they saw it was an investment. They owned the land and somebody had to run them. And then it got to be, it wasn't a good investment. And they all split up into smaller places again and somebody else was still in, in taking care of the land. So, uh, you know, that that's one of the things I recognized through the virtually most of my years is at the ranch there that land ownership especially in these large ranches the reason that it remained in these large ranches and for any period of time as long as it did was not because the ranches were making lots of money the return on investment was very poor most of them were losing money they were eating up equity the most biggest reason that most of those stayed in in investors or large land ownership for that period of time was for the last 20 some years was land appreciation you know there was a period of time there for almost 20 years where it was growing 11 12 percent a year land was appreciating in value and uh, that's why they stayed in that, but then it's it's going to plateau, just like the housing market's going to plateau, and then things are going to change, you know. But <clears throat> you know, one of the things that I saw in the most recent past, uh, from a human standpoint and demographics, was during COVID, people wanted out of the cities, out of the populated areas. They wanted to get back out here even though they wouldn't know how to fend for themselves as they still didn't have those conveniences like electricity and and those sorts of things but they they would have more of a chance out here than fighting the masses for food and their needs yeah i appreciate that that, that's a human instinct you know your self-preservation family preservation is still a human instinct so that gives me a little bit of hope for the future but honestly my one of my biggest concerns is that we're a, a society very affluent society that quickly is not going to know how or to provide their own food and fiber 
to me, that's a big difference. When you're, you're talking about it being cyclical, you know, large, big operations and then Homestead Act or whatever economic, whatever world event happens that all of a sudden well, a big syndicate or a big land mass gets broken up into smaller ownerships and then maybe it gets, ends up being big again somehow. My concern in this day and age is that there's a difference between what was happening back then. Everybody was still being productive. The land still had to be productive. Now, these places, you know, we got range ground that's getting broken up into subdivisions and stuff that will never be productive again mm. because it's got yeah. fences everywhere and small acreages. And yeah. um, we've we've got it. The, the land needs to produce something for human consumption. For, for the human condition can to continue. I, I, I want to share something with you that I've not shared with anybody, and it, it just occurred just in the last couple days to me, and that is uh, about our the moral fiber in our in our country, and and the values and beliefs and moral fiber in our country, and. You know, we see a lot of people. I, I don't know how people are getting by because nobody wants to work. I, I just don't understand that. Uh, I, I, you know, personally, I, it's just not part of me. But you, you can, there should be, there's so many jobs out there nobody can f get filled because nobody wants to work. But how are they getting by? Is, you know, and, and it, it concerns me that, you know, they've taken like uh, – attitude that it's owed them and the government's going to provide entitlement. it. Entitlement. But the just the when you look at the just the appearance of the general population in our society today, what struck me just a couple of days ago, I I was looking at something on on the internet and there was a picture came up from uh the depression and it was a picture of in a city of men standing probably 10 abreast and for as far as you could see down the street in line for jobs because there weren't any I don't see that happening here now but the thing that struck me about the moral and the character of our, the people in our society. When I looked back at that picture, then people were genuinely hungry. I mean, yep. literally every one of them had a nice top coat on and a hat. They, they had some, some character and, and cared about how they looked, yep. you know, and how they, they came across to a potential employer or somebody that was going to help them provide for their family and I don't see that in our in our society anymore it, people don't care yeah yeah uh, generally we think of pride as a bad thing but I don't think it's always bad in every context like people don't take pride in in how they look and how they present themselves anymore um, well, some do but like as a as a society I would agree with you it, it's kind of sad to see that the level of class that you see in old pictures, old videos, old movies has definitely changed. And 
So, but it, it, you know, it, it, you see that in, in so many different things. Uh, look at the cars we drive down. If you could have gotten to see the cars that were in the 40s and 50s and, and early 60s, I mean, they had style. They had flair, them fenders. They had style. Now I can't tell a Subaru from, a, from an Equinox. I mean, they all look the same, really. And they're, they're maybe efficient, and, you know, but they don't have a, a character or a style about them. Our country needs to get its style back. I think that's part of the reason that people appreciate the cowboy and Western culture and appreciate the cowboy hat in general. I mean, I can remember being younger and being, being really actually kind of judgmental whenever I'd see somebody with a Walmart cowboy hat on or, you know, some city guy with. But as I've gotten older, I've come to realize, you know what, as long as somebody from the urban population, as long as people from outside of Western culture are still putting on a cowboy hat because they think there's any sort of cool around it, or there's any sort of unique part of America. Yeah, it, it is a very patriotic symbol. And that's why I made it as my logo, because it is it's not only my roots, it's, it is uniquely identifiable to the United States of America. And people all over the world, like in, in you know, my adventure cowboy niche where I do videos and a lot of the guns and stuff that I do are made in Italy. Europe has a crazy cowboy fascination, American cowboy fascination, and I love it. Because as long as there's still people out there fascinated with our way of life, you know, they, they you hear, you know, the cowboys going away or the cowboys dying. I don't, as long as there's people out there that want to be a cowboy, I don't think it is. I think we're going to have to end it here because we're going on quite a while. Um, we're not quite done, but uh, we may just have another podcast and do more conversations in you, the future. You know where I live. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, I'm going to do something now that is bonus material for all of you that are watching. And I think in future podcasts, this is going to be something that uh, will be available through like Patreon or something like that, um, rather than just on every podcast. But since this is the first one, I'm going to ask Dad some lightning questions. <laughs> so this is the bonus content of the episode. Now, as I ask you these questions, remember I'm 70. <laughs> I have I think we moments. should worry about you remembering. <laughs> yeah, <I've> seen your <laughs> moments. So, uh I'm going to ask you these questions. They're real simple. This is supposed to be more lighthearted and fun. Um just when I ask the question, give your quick answer first and then we can elaborate on your answer after that. Um, duh, does duh work? Because <laughs> eventually I'll be able to stitch all these together with all the different guests oh. and have like reels of everybody's oh. different answer. Okay. Uh, all right. Here we go. If money were no object, where would you like to live? Right where I do. What is your favorite brand of truck? Hmm. Ford. 
What One that your, runs. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. What is your favorite music? I'm going to say Merle Haggard because that's what your mom and I like to dance to. I love it. Uh, what is your favorite meal? Oh, that's tough. Your mom's stew or meatloaf or chili. Uh, potato soup's right up there with it, too. Mom's potato soup. Mom's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What is your favorite vacation destination that you've been to? That I've been to? That you've been to or that you want to go to, I guess. <laughs> I got to be careful here because I might have to go there if I say it. <laughs> no. Uh, I, the, the ones that we've taken, I've enjoyed every one of them. Uh, we got to go a few years ago to Hawaii, and and that was the most relaxed vacation. The, the most relaxed I've been in my adult life was those few days we spent in Hawaii. You know, uh, I've talked about I would like to go to South America sometime. But as as we get older, I get a little less uh, adventurous. Adventurous, I, I am. Sue isn't as much, you know. But we've been to to Mexico, and we really enjoyed that. But regardless of wherever we we go on a vacation, the the, the memorable parts of those are are the people you go meet, and might be the people that you meet on the way to that vacation or back. Yeah. But uh, South America. I, I I would like to see Brazil. Cool. What is your favorite Western movie or TV show? Oh, this one's going to be tough for him because the Western Channel never shuts off at his house. That's right. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of really good... Uh, some of my favorites, of course, John Wayne's great. Uh, Randall Scott, I, I love the Western movies he, he did. But one of the, and, and it was done in more modern times, but one of the movies, Western movies that I enjoyed the most that I would like to go go see again or see again is Last of the Dogmen <laughs> with Tom Berenger. Yeah. That, you know, it was just, it was out there, but man, that, that was cool. Yeah. Okay. So, you don't have a favorite. What is your favorite movie or TV show? If you, like, if you had to pick one that comes to the top of your head. My favorite movie? Uh, it's not The Searchers of John Wayne's. He had lots of movies that I think were better than that. And The Cowboys was brutal. I, I liked it, but... Uh, Man in the Saddle, Randolph Scott's. What is your favorite rodeo athlete of all time? One that you've enjoyed watching, um, competed with. <laughs> Doesn't Boy, matter. That's a hard one. Uh, Who comes to your mind like that you enjoyed 
Who's your favorite rodeo athlete of all time? There's just been so many. There's so many that I've known that. To... Huh. Well, let me let me make it easier because that was your world for a long time, and picking favorites is like picking your favorite friend. So, who who is your favorite to watch now? Now. Oh man, there's so many. Um, I tell you, I, I I really enjoyed. It was it was after I I had quit competing, but in the calf rope and Brent Lewis, I think he was probably one of the best all around hands, absolute hands. Phil Lyon was another one. I mean, that was a real all around hand, um, calf rope, steer rope, bull ride. I mean, there's lots of really good hands, and I've known lots of them. Uh, Phil Lyon was probably one of the best ones all around, but but I'd say Brent Lewis was. I remember worth watching right there Brent behind Lewis him. in the calf rope with no bridle on. I was impressed by that. And then he's got a son Sam's coming up now, and he's going to be just as good. But I like watching Haven Medjid. Yeah. Um, he, he he reminds me so much of Brent Lewis. I mean, it's just no wasted motion, and it's all just <laughs> channeled right there. But it, what my favorite part about both of those guys is they're ranch guys. Like it is, they could go. They're the real thing. They could go out and doctor a calf using those same techniques yeah. as soon as they get home. Like I've, I've always really liked watching both of those guys. Yeah, they they're not a town kid that grew up in a in a rodeo or a roping school. No, and both of them, I never uh, been around. Uh, I was around Brent a little bit of rodeos. He wouldn't know me, but just never. Never anything ugly around him, and from my observations, Haven Haven's very much the same way. But they were just, competitors, yep. fierce competitors. Fierce competitors, but good people. Yeah. Yeah. This one's a little deeper. Who has been your biggest hero? Wow. Probably my dad. Yeah. Easily. I miss him. All right. Less deep. What is the best book you have read recently? I have been on a kick lately of going back and rereading all of my Zane Gray books, <laughs> but absolutely, and, I, and I'll I'll qualify this because I haven't reread it yet. I've saved it for last. Thirty thousand on the hoof by Zane Gray, my all-time favorite book. Yeah, I I loved reading that one when I was younger too. And just so you know, I've got 55 more of those hardcovers in the shop that are in a box if you're looking for some more. <laughs> All right. And last, what is the most impactful advice you could give somebody right now? If you could talk to anybody in the world, 
or just the world as a whole, what would be the most impactful advice you could give them in one statement? Ask the Lord to save you. Because that's all that really matters. We're just here for a short time. But we're in eternity forever. And it's in one place or the other. Ask the Lord to save you so you can go to heaven and spend eternity there instead of hell. Nothing more important. Well, I think that's a good way to end the show. I want to thank you for coming on, being my first guest. This It is interesting because we've had lots of conversations over the years, but this is probably one of the most in-depth personal face-to-face conversations that we've ever had covering so many subjects. So I'm very grateful that you were my first guest and you'll probably be on in the future. Grab your book off the shelf there and we'll just set it on the table here. Dad's book is Cowboy in a Corporate World. It is available Anywhere online where books are sold, but um, you can get it through your local bookstore. If they don't have it, you can probably order it, or you can get it from your website. You want to give everybody, like, how do people get in touch with you? What's the best way? Raymarkser.com is the website, and it'll give you all the different options on the book. It, you know, we have a website and it tells a lot about us and everything, and, but then it gives you the options of how to get the book. You can get it either in this hardcover jacketed uh, through the website, and I'll sign them however you want them signed, or a uh, soft cover uh, through the website, and I can sign them through the website. Or you can get them a, lo- a lot of the local bookstores and some of the local uh, little markets in our local small towns we've we've put books in there and i've signed them all so that our local community is uh part of marketing my book i I just want to get it out to people so but uh, and then you can get it on amazon also i think it's in the bookstore in in uh the Bozeman Airport too, but it's it's you can get them on Amazon. The ones on Amazon are are the soft cover, and then they have a, a hard cover, but it's just a laminate. It doesn't have the dust jacket, and of course, coming from Amazon, it's not going to be signed by me. But I mean, you've got everything in the book; it's the same. And then you can also get it on ebook uh, there, and it's it's been unbelievable the, the response. Uh, we're right now at our website. We we buy them in bulk and then for our website and the signed ones. We've been run out of the hardcover books uh, for most of this month, and we're still waiting on a shipment. But we we've already got a case of those books already spoken for. But if somebody orders one, even if it doesn't come, you know, real quick because it's on back order, it'll come in. You'll get it signed oh, yeah. and sent the, to them. Yeah, we get them when when we have the books on hand, and they should get here any day. Uh, but uh, the hardcovers. But at any rate, the, uh, when we get the order through our website, then I'll sign them however they need to be, and, and we ship them out the next day. And literally, they'll, they'll ship anywhere in the United States you know, within three or four days. Uh, longest we've had was nine days, and that was to Northern Alberta. Uh, so it's, it's been very good. We're, we're very humbled and appreciative of people's interest in the book. And, what it's, and there's, as you know, there's 
There's a lot in the book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we've just touched on little subjects throughout yeah. the whole book. Yeah. But there's a lot of depth in there, and, and yeah. there's some of the good stories. And if they're interested in ranch stories and entertaining stories, you also have a Facebook page. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there's quite a few stories that I've written in the past on, on that, and uh, uh, I'll probably start back up writing stories again maybe once a week or once every two weeks. Uh, there's an endless supply. <laughs> there, there just is. Well, the Facebook page is called Cowboy in a Corporate World by Ray Markser, and I'll put links in the show notes for all of the different sites that he mentioned. But that's it. Well, there's a lot of, of good stories that I've already written, and there's I've I've saved I've saved one that I have not written. I've saved it for some special time. That uh, it's just chicken and rice. Well, <laughs> and that's all I'm going to say. That's a hanger, a cliffhanger right there. And Mitch is not going to be happy when he hears it. All right, folks, thank you for joining us. My name is Clayton Markser. This is my guest, Ray Markser, who's also my father. I hope you enjoyed this first interview, and there will be more to come. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on episode number two of the Living Western Podcast with guest... Ray Markser. As always, if you would like to find out more about Living Western and what we're all about, please go to livingwesternpodcast.com. You can also check out Living Western on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. We'll see you next time.